0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Arthur Zients. He is emeritus professor of physics at Amherst College and director of the academic program of the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society. I spoke with him on May 4, 2010, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a private recording studio in Berkeley, California. This interview is included in our show, Holding Life Consciously. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org.
1: Always a bit of a challenge, but we managed to do that on time. So everything seems to have gone all right. Hello. Hi. Is Krista?
0: Yes. Is that Arthur? It is indeed. (coughs) Well, it's lovely to have you at the other end of the microphone.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Where, where are you today? Are you at Amherst?
1: No, I'm in Berkeley. Oh, uh, I was right. just at a Fetzer-sponsored meeting actually in South Sal Salido, mm-hmm. so this was the closest we could find.
0: Okay, good. Do you have any questions of me before we
2: start?
1: Nope, I think I'm fine. First,
2: I need to just talk with Milty for a second. We're getting a little bit of Krista back down the line, if we could... Just verify that we're not sending that
1: down? Uh, so I think Milt just stepped out to get a glass of water. Okay, he's getting you
2: some water. Okay. He comes back. I'll have a quick note for him before we start.
1: Okay. Also, it looks it's a little loud in my ears. I'm wondering, one of these I, You knobs. know, those
0: those two things are connected, so he'll help you turn down the um, the headphones, and that will make a difference. Okay. Do you need, Chris, do you need some levels? A little bit from you before you start. Okay. I've just been traveling. and um,
1: You're settling back in, trying I'm to get your bearings? Back in.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. I don't, I'm not quite
1: exhausted. balanced
0: again. A little exhausted, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, we'll try to help each other out. Yeah. Well,
0: I'll, I'm going to draw energy from you. I hope that's all right.
1: That's fine. <laughs> I've got the California sunshine right here, so I'll try to send a little bit of it your way. All right. Milt's just walking in. Maybe you want to ask him about that feedback.
2: Yeah, so Milt, we're getting a little crystal down the line. It sounds like uh, his headphones may be a little hot.
1: Yeah, they're a little loud for me. You're going to want to make sure that your cell phone is off. I did. I just turned it off. Okay. And the volume control is here. The far left? Yes. And if you could have it as low as possible... And um, that would prevent that echo going back. All right. So let me turn it down to. Krista, go ahead and talk to him. Okay. Let him say he's low. Um,
0: testing, testing, testing. Now I'm.
1: Yeah. i hearing right?
0: myself. What is that? I didn't. I wasn't hearing that echo before.
2: Maybe I'm hearing it through the studio mill. Uh, oh, the door is open.
0: Oh, okay. That's what that is. All right.
1: Try. How is this? Is uh, the level uh, is better that, this way.
0: Yeah, it's fine for me. And can you still hear me and? I kind still hear sink you into just the conversation. fine. Okay.
1: Yeah. If we could,
2: if you could go a touch lower, that would help us out.
1: Do it. Do what? Do, do we're talking to me or to?
2: Sorry, I'm. I'm sorry. Talking to you, sir.
1: A touch lower. I can do that. I don't know. Tr- say something, Krista. See okay. if I can still hear um,
0: you. All right. Well, I've I've uh, I've had a lot of fun delving into your writing and uh, and other interviews you've given. So it's really been great. I'm excited about this.
1: Great. I look forward to it as well.
0: Um, Chris, my volume is a little bit high, too.
1: Am I supposed to hear myself through the earphones, Milt? I don't.
0: That's not good.
1: Uh, I hear myself. That's better. Yeah.
2: Okay. I just want to verify, too, um, I'm hearing uh, a little bit of cell phone activity, not somebody's ringer, but actually like a text or something. The cell phone on you today off. off okay great
0: okay um do you want me to uh arthur why don't you tell me something mundane like uh let's see if you had <laughs>
2: we're we're fine with arthur you could actually give us a little something
0: <laughs> we don't need to do this we're we can fine plunge with me, straight into
2: profound <laughs> okay
0: so that's what you're giving us permission to do right we can start chris okay okay um so So, you know, what I want to tease out here and discuss over this next hour, hour and a half, is, um, you know, your way of living with scientific and spiritual knowledge and practices. You know, your way of knowing, your ways of knowing, which is one of your phrases. Um, And I want to start with... uh, at the beginning, <laughs> uh, when I, when I, what I can read and hear about your childhood is very interesting that you were formed by a pretty interesting confluence of cultures, right? A genteel Southern mother and a, a father who was um, from a Polish immigrant family.
1: That's right. So the two sides of thy family, you know, flowed into my early childhood. The wonderful, rebellious, and boisterous Polish side of my family and the complimentary sort of dignity and southern gentility of my mother's side of the family. Mm-hmm. The uh, polar side, illiterate. And the uh, other side of my family, my mother's side, very literate. Mm-hmm. So both of those, you know, made their impression on me as a young, a young child.
0: And was there a religious upbringing in that mix? Um...
1: There was. There was. Both my mother and father were Roman Catholics, and okay. so I was raised as a Catholic. Now, that period, as you know, was a as a period where the church was going through certain revolutions. So mm-hmm. I'm 60. Fifty years ago, there was still a Latin mass. Yeah. Uh, I was a naturally pious kind of child, I'd say, and only became disillusioned with the church in my teenage years and, and went through a, a kind of transformation and catharsis and a lot of questioning on into college.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you went to college, you, you studied engineering and then physics. So um, had you always had a scientific bent or what you, What drew you to that?
1: Yeah, I, I was always interested in the sciences, whether it was Tom Swift, you know, and in his inventions as a book, as a real book reader in my childhood or my chemistry set, my go-kart that I built, the first car that I had that I took apart and put together. and So science, technology, chemistry, physics, astronauts – all that was totally fascinating to me. And so there was no real ambiguity about what direction I was going to go in. But that I'd say also, you know, was paired off with an early interest in the large questions of life, the Mm -hmm. philosophical issues of life. So that was also a longing, which did not get met adequately, I felt, in the church that I was working within, the Roman Catholic Church at that time. So it was something I went to college and still had as a as an interest, an unfulfilled yearning.
0: And, I mean, do you think you were looking also for illumination about those large questions through your study of science?
1: Indeed. I, I think, you know, if I were to characterize those first years in college, it was finally I'm here, you know, science, which is going to solve the big questions, to reveal truth with a capital T, you know, all of that was a kind of hidden expectation. hmm And, of course, those who practice science know that for all its glories and and its insights, it doesn't really address those core issues, at least not as it's traditionally taught. And so that led to a kind of existential crisis, I'd say, around my junior year, where I felt like it was becoming more and more abstract and less and less proximate to the kinds of larger philosophical issues I still longed to discover and learn something about. Mm -hmm. So, so what did that, you do
0: about that? What did Yeah.
1: You? So I decided to flunk out, <laughs> if you want to know the truth. <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, I, I actually thought this was a dangerous thing to do because it was the Vietnam War era. And if you weren't mm. in school, then you were in the army. And then you were in Vietnam. Right. So, but I was in a deep existential crisis and decided it was a kind of sham what I was doing and I could step out, but somehow I felt like maybe flunking out was a better option somehow. So I started not showing up for tests or leaving them early or not turning in homework and so forth. And and in the end game of that, there was one professor of physics who seemed rather interesting, uh older gentleman. And it was through a very central and pivotal conversation in my life that he opened up about his own spiritual quest, if you will. Mm-hmm. So here's the 60-year-old, eminently sensible physicist at the University of Michigan. And uh, after telling me I had basically gotten a D in the course, and I think that was a gift, um, we began to talk about the larger issues that were behind the D, if you will, behind the resolution to, to fail. And as a consequence of that, a whole set of readings, literature opened up because he had been a long-time meditator himself. Okay. Yeah, 40 years' worth of contemplative practice and so had a form of contemplative spirituality that began to make sense in terms of science. So that's been a—that was a doorway that I stepped through and have never regretted it.
0: I'm thinking that in the 1960s for a physicist to be a meditator was, in the West was pretty unusual.
1: Very. You know, there was a lot of Asian spirituality running around.
0: Right, but um, it was still pretty new in, in the United States. Yes, it then. was
1: brand new, and he'd uh-huh. been doing this for 40 years by the time I met him. He had uh-huh. started when he was my age. I was 20, and I know from long friendship then with him that he'd begun at my age, if you will, at, mm-hmm. at age of 20. So, And it was a Western contemplative tradition that he was working with, which okay. was also attractive to me because I was... In love with Plato at the time. Okay. Not not so not so engaged and interested in the Asian traditions.
0: Uh-huh. Now, was he the person who introduced you to Goethe?
1: He was. Although then, through him, he saw my interest in Goethe, and then he introduced me to another professor uh, who was a German scholar, particular scholar of Goethe's works, and uh, so it was through him. That I became especially active and interested in Goethe's color work, I read all of the stuff that had been translated mm-hmm. and uh, gradually made my way into a real you know sort of love affair with this extraordinary genius who spanned so many different disciplines and brought such insight into where into each one of them uh, sometimes controversial in his own his right. own way but you know nonetheless uh, fabulous mind to track and then that that especially his interest in science, Goethe's interest in science, which is so different from the conventional science I've been learning, mm-hmm. stimulated me to broaden my conception of science and to start reading in the history and philosophy of science. and So, so that
0: on. brought you back around, or kept you, kept you in science.
1: Completely reframed everything I was learning. It was like the same classes on quantum mechanics or what? electromagnetic theory all of a sudden started to make sense. It was as if I was. Mining each of these courses for a kind of nugget of gold, which probably had already always been there, but now I knew what to look for. Somehow mm. to situate this striving after a physical understanding of the world around us in a much larger ethical, moral, spiritual context uh, that was part of the human enterprise, and no longer just an isolated bit, but something integrated into all of our human concerns, and that was of huge, you know, kind of revolutionary significance for me personally. And, and it's something I still hold on to, that I think we often decontextualize right. the knowledge that we, that we study or teach to our students. And as a consequence, they don't see themselves how to connect it to the, to the rest of their lives.
0: Right. So, you know, I, I have to say, um, I, I, this is a bit of a discovery for me. And I, I spent quite a few years in Germany, but I actually did not know that Goethe had this scientific side to him, right? I mean, he is best known as a writer, as a poet and playwright, um, novelist. And, you know, so from your writing, (laughs) which is about, about science and, and, uh, and human life and human spirituality, I, I find that he had this rich life in science and he dabbled or explored from geology to botany and, um, and the nature of color and vision. So, you know, I'd like, I, I think this will be new to a lot of people. So I'd like to spend a little time on that, on Goethe as a formative person for you. And uh, how this way of uh, coming at some of these ideas, as you say, reframed your understanding of science.
1: Yeah. I mean, Goethe's uh, self-assessment was that his scientific work was of more importance than his literary work. Right. <laughs> You know, there's a famous line that he, uh, at the end of his life, he had a secretary named Eckermann, a gentleman, who essentially took down orally whatever Goethe said okay. in the last couple of years of his life. And he quotes Goethe saying something like, there have been better poets than I in the past and shall be better poets in the future, but that I in my time am the only one who knows the truth with regards to color, <laughs> of that I am not a little proud and conscious of a superiority in many. So, you know, he had a big, you know, a, a big, uh, he, first of all, he had a big ego. But he also um, felt that this scientific work that he was up to would outlast his work in poetry, his Faust, his mm-hmm. novels, all the things, of course, that we know him for.
0: Right. but And I mean, let's be clear, he was also taking on Newton when he talked about yes, his superior right.
1: theories. Newton's theory was the dominant one. The mm-hmm. wave theory was coming in, you could say, by Goethe's time. So, The particle theory of color, which Newton had advanced, was now had a competitor. But both of those theories were quite different from the type of theory that Goethe put forward. His teachings on color were quite different.
0: So describe those, um, Newton's theory, and then what what Goethe did that was different.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, there's the, the particular understanding of color, which Newton puts forward in a set of queries or questions. You know, isn't it possible that light is, and then essentially a set of minute particles the largest of which are, correspond to red and the smallest of which correspond to blue. Mm. And when the prism disperses the light, it sorts out the sizes of the different particles. Okay. So, it, so it's a kind of very easy mechanical picture, a materialistic kind of picture of the nature of light, that these are uh, preexistent characteristics that are already in the light, namely the sizes. By contrast, the wave theory of light disbanded entirely with the notion of particles and, and had itself modeled wave propagation on sound and, and water waves. And a whole set of different phenomena were explained by the wave theory, ones that were very difficult for Newton himself to explain with his theory. And then Goethe, in some ways, cuts across at a right angle to, b- to both of these theories. Right. He's... Uh, He's not concerned with models of what it is that's going on as we're behind the scenes. What he's concerned with are the phenomena themselves. And he consistently rejects the notion that science's task is to, as we're getting behind the theater of, of the senses and to look at the pulleys and counterweights, as Fontenelle called them. <laughs> okay. You're right. You know, that, that's, that's not the business of the scientist. The scientist is to look at the phenomena and understand the phenomena from within themselves. And this has been a big source of controversy then because the tradition of science has been a kind of materialistic and mechanistic picture that is taken to be the account that produces the subjective experience of our lives.
0: Okay. So you have to understand that in order to understand your own reaction to it?
1: Yeah. You know, basically, Goethe is shifting our whole emphasis away from what is, I believe, a materialistic metaphysics which science imports, it's not part of science but it imports into the science and he's saying, don't do that you know, he's not actually advocating a spiritual worldview, what he's actually he's uh, arguing for is is a worldview which honors human experience but what that does is to open the door to all levels of human experience, the levels of art the levels mm-hmm. of ethical choice, the levels of your very life, which is, of course, lived in this world of experience. It's not lived in a world of particles and waves. It's lived in a world of direct human experience, including even your religious and spiritual experiences. Right. So he, in some ways, he's arguing for the subjective, not subjective in the sense of capricious or unlegitimated, because he's very careful about experience but uh, subjective in the sense that you have that experience and it's sanctioned. It's not eliminated. It's not seen as epiphenomenal or delusion.
0: So uh, I just want to – and I want to talk about that subjectivity. Uh, but I, I also want to clarify something that um, – so when you're, you're talking about color, we're talking about color, we're talking about Newton analyzing the prism or others analyzing. But but as you say, what, what they're really talking about is light. And I mean just the way Goethe said um, – this is some lines of his. Colors are the deeds and sufferings of light. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, die Taten und Leiden, the deeds and sufferings of light. Uh huh. Yeah, and it's the deeds and sufferings of light with darkness, you could say. So they, the colors come into being through the interaction or the conflict or the meeting of light and darkness, these uh-huh. two large polarities that exist within our world, within Goethe's imagination. Yeah, when they come together, then there arises color. So, for example, the blue sky or the red of the sunset are taken by Goethe to be what he calls archetypal phenomena where the interaction between light and darkness is particularly evident. So when you look at the red of the sunset, you're looking through the kind of darkening agent of the sky, of the of the atmosphere itself, towards the sun, which is a source of light. And so the light seen through that darkening medium gives us the reds. And a complementary account can give you the blues. So, again, he's looking for accounts of color
3: mm-hmm.
1: as arising through this interaction of light and darkness, but they're seen in the phenomena themselves. The as it were the I think of the archetypal phenomenon as a self evident manifestation of a natural law, a law which we don't, don't look for as a mechanism, but we perceive directly.
0: And and that perception itself isn't isn't he also saying is part of that picture of, of, of what's happening, of describing the reality of color and light.
1: Yeah. Every discovery in science, it, people have a wrong kind of idea of how discoveries happen in science. They, they think you kind of calculate your way towards the discovery. It never works that way. You know, you may embed Im- yourself in the math. You may study it thoroughly or you may work within the lab context and have data sets that you're pouring over. But the insight comes in a flash. you know, It's walking across a bridge in Dublin and inscribing the, the formula for the quaternions, how they're going to work in pure mathematics. Or it's Newton seeing an apple fall. And when he sees the apple fall, he says, well, that's exactly the same as the moon overhead. Mm-hmm. They look totally different, but he sees them as congruent with one another. Then you get busy with the math and you say, could that be? You get busy with the uh, experiment that's going to confirm or disconfirm what it is you've just seen. But you've seen it intuitively. You've seen it as what Goethe calls an aperçu, a moment of perception, direct perception. And that was for Goethe, that moment of discovery was the key. Everything else that follows on is of of less interest to him. His interests are less with the technical sides of science than with its application to human life, to the arts, of course, painting, among other arts. And so he's interested in what he calls the sensory moral, or zindliche, zittliche, sensory moral aspects of color.
0: Right, right. Uh, I mean, there, there's, here's a sentence that you wrote. Goethe forcefully holds our attention to the epiphanous moments in science, the poetry that is the heart of science.
1: Exactly. Can Explain you know,
0: that to me, the poetry well, that you, is uh, the heart of science.
1: Knowledge is not an object that you acquire, it's not a. It's not a, a mechanism that somehow you 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 provide uh, to the to the human mind. It's actually an epiphanal moment. You know, it's it's a manifestation in your mind or heart or wherever it appears, of of something which is insubstantial. It's a it's a it's a pattern that's perceived and it's a insight which is had. And I think this is true of the arts, poetry, painting, music. Where do those motifs come from? Where does that brilliant painting, that Monet or that Beethoven sonata, where do those come from? What's the intuition, the creative capacity that's common to both the sciences and the arts? And I would say also to spiritual understanding, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you know, that one can awaken or have that epiphanal moment in any of these areas, science, arts, ethics, spirituality. So if we're looking for a common ground, which we often are in the science and spirituality debate or discussion, we often look in the wrong place. We look at the fruits of science. We Look at all its theoretical apparatus and its detailed understandings. We don't look at the creative genesis of those understandings. We don't dig down to the taproot of science. We look at its fruits. Same sort of thing in religion. We, we take an exegesis of a particular text, say, the creation story. We, create it, we compare it to the scientific accounts of Big Bang. Right. You know, this is comparing fruits of two different traditions, theology and astrophysics. Almost never do you have a really useful conversation, in my view, on that basis. The common ground, it seems to me, is, is when one goes deeper and says, no, these are sourced from a common uh, well and they manifest in different ways hmm. one in the arts one in the sciences one in religious and spiritual insights so the epiphany is in some sense a common denominator
3: hmm.
1: but we have to then have an idea of knowledge which is not reductive right but which is which, is a lot, which allows for the direct experience of the epiphany hmm. again ex- sanctioning experience experience matters it counts it's not something to be discounted so Krista y- yes so sorry to interrupt Dr Ziad Yes. Um, are you wearing a,
2: a jacket of some kind or quite a bit of fabric noise?
1: Oh, I'm moving around over here. You want me to be still?
2: <laughs> okay, take your clothes off.
1: <laughs> yes, we, that's the
2: way we prefer to do most of our interviews. <laughs> that's right. So sorry to interrupt your conversation. I just want to make sure that we're, we're getting as clean as we can. While yeah. we're
0: pausing, could you up my volume just a little bit?
2: You or both him?
0: Me, just me. Well, him, him actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just a little bit. Okay, are you comfortable?
2: Yeah, right. I, I want to make sure you're not going to be too cold. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's nice and warm. Sorry, in the studio. it's
0: kind of late in the day. We're a little punch drunk here. Um, you know, something that strikes me, and tell me if I'm making a false analogy here. Um, it, it seems like Goethe, and again, in contrast to Newton, he was he was he was resisting this. What he saw as a mechanistic, reductionistic approach to science, which distanced yes. itself from experience and, and mm-hmm. from the subjective. I mean, in a way, tried to pretend like the subjective wasn't didn't matter. Um, and he insisted that the scientist is not a passive observer, but that the scientist is participating, in fact, in the phenomena he's describing, discovering. As, I mean... Tell me if I need to say this
1: better. No, that's that's absolutely right. But,
0: but it seems to me that there are such interesting echoes between that and and some of the very interesting things that quantum physics is is describing in the twenty first century.
1: Yes, you put your finger on something I think very significant. <laughs> you know. So Goethe is easily dismissed and traditionally has been dismissed as a scientist. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, I think unfairly he wasn't working in a technical manner but his insights philosophical and 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 otherwise were I think profoundly correct and what we have now in the relativity theory and and the quantum theory is a is a pair of theories both of them that emphasize the importance of the observer right you know in particular you know we we whether replace. the observer
0: wills it or not or likes it or not, right?
1: Yeah, it has nothing to do with what, <laughs> what they think, you know, or uh-huh. what they hope or what have you. But they're just implicated. They are implicated in everything. You know, we, t- we, we replace in the traditional reductive framework sense observations with particles of a certain size. With Descartes, extension becomes the primary attribute. Everything else is secondary.
0: So what do you mean extension becomes the...
1: Extension. So you take, say, a red color.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that corresponds to a wavelength of 600 nanometers. Okay. So that's a a length. Or you take uh, the colors, uh, in Newton's theory, it was a set of particles of certain sizes. Okay. So there's always something like that that's going on in every theory, that there's a, a, a translation or a reduction of a lived experience into the mechanistic interactions of a set of particles whose only primary, only real attribute is size. Mm -hmm. Everything else disappears. They're colorless. They don't smell like anything and so forth. And Goethe, of course, is arguing in the opposite direction. But the fact of the matter is that in relativity theory, for example, no object has its own size, its own nature. It's always in respect to an observer in the so-called, as Einstein called Call them inertial frame. That is to say, a frame of reference that's moving at a uniform speed. So the same object can look to be one foot long. It can be look to be six inches long. It can look to be three inches long. And you can say, well, what's the true length of the object? Right. What's its real size? And what you realize in relativity is that that question's a wrong question. Size is constituted out of a relationship. The hmm. relationship itself is constitutive. So the things we take to be fundamental, the most fundamental, how big is something, is ambiguous, not just because we don't know, but mm. because relationships can be different.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that, since
1: size is always derived through a relationship.
0: And what I've heard people it, describe is that even in this quantum world, it sort of, so the minute you as a scientist start to study something, you also affect what you're studying.
1: Yes. So you are implicated also in the process of measurement. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's important to say from a classical standpoint, that was also the case. Okay, this is a point of confusion, but it was also the case. But in the classical instance, you could always reduce your participation, your disturbance below any level. So there was never a, a level below which you couldn't get, you know. I think of it like a sleeping child. If you go in You have an infant and you're trying to check on the child. You go in and you tiptoe, right? And you Mm -hmm. try not to disturb the child. Same sort of thing with the physicist in the laboratory. You try not to disturb the child. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But in fact, you know, you're going to bump things and make noises and it's going to disturb the measurement and it's going to disturb the child and they're going to wake up. Now, in classical physics, you can always reduce the disturbance. You can always go in quieter. In quantum physics, the, the, the least action, the least disturbance is given by the so-called quantum. So if you're looking with light, you need at least one photon. You can't take a half a photon. It doesn't, mm. no such photon exists. So that's the difference. There's no way of eliminating the disturbance, where in classical physics, you could, in principle, eliminate it. Oh, I see. See?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, also, there, there are three or four other ways in which the observer... And the context they set up through their instrumentation, which is a kind of extension of their intention, implicates, again, the human observer in relationship to the quantum system. Bohr talked about them as constituting a whole. You can't really separate the observer from the system. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of artifice. So in both quantum mechanics and relativity theory, the observer is there. Now, this comes back to the question of subjectivity. In other words, the human subject... (laughs) is always present. You can't get rid of that human subject. Mm -hmm. Our experience is what it is that is constituted out of that relationship, and that's what science actually works with. That's what the physicist actually measures. Now, it may be in the form of a number that it gets switched over to, but it's, it's always a subjective engagement, which then pivots the whole argument, if you will, whereas science has been traditionally reductive and trying to make an object out of a subject, right? Okay. <laughs> now, now we're saying, hey, listen, it's inherently subjective. Mm. Relativity and quantum mechanics tell us that you can't reduce mm. the subject to an object. You, you, it's a, it's ir- irreducibly element. subjective. Mm-hmm. It's irreducibly participatory. Mm-hmm. And then when you say, as opposed to thinking of that as a problem, you think of that as well, the way the world is structured, go with it, make it an advantage. Then you Mm -hmm. pivot with Goethe towards experience as opposed to away from experience. And then you try to clarify the experience, recognizing that what we mean by objectivity is not objects out there in the world, but just reliable experience Mm -hmm. that we can repeat, we can come to know exactly, and through that precise knowledge begin to perceive patterns, and it's those patterns that the scientist discovers. So you can see modern science kind of validating Goethe's emphasis on experience and for me then opening a door towards what I think of as the, the doorway into a right relationship with spirituality right. namely not religious belief which may be fine under certain contexts and circumstances but it's not really of much value in the science spirituality controversy and engagement in my view it, it it's of limited you know, uh, one one falls into a kind of often very acerbic and, and even vitriolic kind of debate. Right. But if well, one then says, you our, you
0: almost put religion at that level of facts that will compete with science as facts. Right? Exactly. So when you when you distinguish between beliefs and spirituality, what's what's the distinction? What is the spirituality then that is, by contrast?
1: Yeah. Well, my my phrase that I've come to come to use is probably a little abstract, but I think of it as a What's key is the cognitively oriented contemplative spirituality. So just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So it's, it's cognitively oriented, which means it's oriented towards knowledge, that it's possible to have a spirituality which is not simply about faith, as, as interesting and complex as that is on its own, but it actually understands itself as committed to knowing. So cognitively oriented, contemplative spirituality. Now, contemplative spirituality you know, starts when I was 20 – and the practice of meditation and contemplation, which has been an important part of my life during all those years, has led me to the conviction that there's an experiential domain in contemplative spirituality which can become clarified, which can become, in some sense, scientific in the sense that it's a repeatable basis of human experience, one that's shared over thousands of years and that we can be engaged with today in a way that is congruent with my activity as a scientist. Mm -hmm. So it's it's cognitively oriented in the sense that also by by knowing more about my interior life and about the interior life you could say of others in the world around me i've discovered something through again the same kind of epiphanous hmm. modality hmm. not a ma- not a matter of reductionism but a mm-hmm. matter of direct experience but now that direct experience is had at the hand of reflection contemplation meditation Tell
0: me uh, when you started to uh, be interested in contemplation and to have a practice meditation. It goes
1: back a long way. I'm mm-hmm. 60 now. It goes back to when I was 20. And, you know, I've been a more or less faithful practitioner ever since then mm-hmm. and uh, have learned a great deal from both the Western contemplative traditions and more recently f- from my Asian and Buddhist friends about meditation as well. Mm-hmm. and. hmm uh, you know, I thought I was pretty alone until a friend and I started inquiring around in and of our I teach at Amherst College, and so we're in the five college area and discovered that there were thirty five courses being taught in the five colleges by some seventy professors that included some meditation in them hmm. and uh Now we have a wide ranging network of some two thousand academics who are talking to each other around. The possible roles and, and indeed the practical ways in which we can teach and research, uh, making use of the benefits of contemplative practice and is, so, is, this,
0: is this at one and the same time about bringing awareness and attention as a quality of your humanity into the classroom as well as perhaps integrating contemplative practices
1: yeah i mean there 's a real motive it 's not that you 're importing uh, spiritual practices willy-nilly into an academic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a rationale. Uh, of course students have their own either agnostic, atheistic or religious beliefs. That's that's their that's their privilege and, and uh, responsibility in mm-hmm. a certain sense. But the contemplative traditions have been extraordinarily successful it seems to me in cultivating attention. And attention is one of the most precious entities the human mind has to offer the world. If we can attend to something in a sustained way, especially in a learning context, it's much to our advantage. The other you know, big gain is if there's an emotional balance, and this is another set of practices which are right. common to the various traditions that one basically creates a healthy mind. So one has both a healthy mind and an attentive mind that one brings to everything that one does is, is a great benefit.
0: There's that phrase um, that I've heard Buddhists use, uh, mental hygiene. Right yeah right Such a you know,
1: and it's not just sixty uh, year olds that need it, when you're twenty, you probably have more need I mean, of no, it when than. you
0: say it that way it it, it, it sounds um, like it belongs in a place in an, uh, alongside academia, where the mind is being cultivated and trained.
1: oh I, I I think so. I mean, I think the whole contemplative tradition, you know uh, separated out from its explicit spiritual and religious uh, context, has a huge amount to offer as a kind of complementary methodology, first of all for the attention and, and, hy- and hygiene it offers, but then also as a mode of inquiry. And this mm-hmm. is something that you mentioned uh, earlier, that ways of knowing, you know, we, we seem to be extremely good at a particular, more reductive and critical ways of knowing. But the contemplative and reflective ways of knowing uh, are largely left out of account or sent over to the art department somehow. <laughs> and uh, if, if science is, as I'm saying, you know, born out of these epiphanies, then I think the reflective and contemplative has a lot to offer, not only as a hygiene uh, for student life or as cultivation of attention, but even as a mode of inquiry, even as a Mm. a way of knowing, which is, after all, the central project that universities and colleges are engaged in. Right.
0: I kept thinking as I was um, reading you and reading about you about Einstein, how intrigued Einstein was with Buddhism. You now, it's hard to pin down exactly what he said about Buddhism, right? Or or what he thought or what he even knew about it. But he does seem to have had a sense that Buddhism might be a religion that could bring together what, what he saw as the best of science and the best of human spirituality. Um, and I you know, when I talked about that to people, I I often point at the mind-life dialogues that the Dalai Lama has been conducting for years and that you've been part of. is a very interesting, you know, it's it's, it's as though the Dalai Lama has taken up uh, that idea of Einstein. And um, so, you know, if, 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 let me just ask you, ask it this way. If, if Einstein knew what you knew, know now and has been had been part of these mind life dialogues, I mean, and if he knew what you know about contemplation, um, do you think this would be intriguing to him? What do you think would intrigue him? What would he find resonance with in Buddhism and being a physicist?
1: You know, the early uh, physicists—that is to say, from 1900 to 1925, when all of the great Papers were being written on relativity and quantum mechanics. These scientists were also highly cultivated uh, individuals speaking Latin, Greek. They all spoke their own language in the scientific meetings, and everybody understood enough languages that they could get by. They played musical instruments. They they read Plato in the original. I mean, it's amazing Mm -hmm. to me how wonderfully cultivated they were. And that means that when they're just making these discoveries, they're thinking about their implications. They're not just doing the kind of business of computation. They're actually thinking about the philosophical and religious and spiritual implications of these huge ideas that are being birthed at the dawn of the 20th century. So Einstein was not alone in his interest in, say, non-Western spirituality. And Schrodinger was likewise and also interested in ancient philosophy. Heisenberg, as a student, is reading the Timaeus on the rooftop of his of his research building in the Mm. Greek, you know. I Mm. mean, it's Mm. just wonderful to Mm. think of that richness. So I think they would be thrilled by these kinds of dialogues. Mm. You know, when we did the dialogue at MIT, which I moderated.
0: Was that in 2003, 2004? Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: So here are a thousand scientists and scholars. And
0: what's it called? Investigating the mind, right?
1: Investigating the Mm -hmm. mind. And you had uh, a suite, you know, a wonderful lineup of the best mind scientists on the planet, at least that we had access to. And on the other side, the best Buddhist scholars and practitioners in the middle of Dalai Lama
3: mm-hmm.
1: acting as a kind of convener of a conversation. President of MIT is there, it gives the opening address, other distinguished uh, people in the front row, you could say. And what one had a, a feeling that was going on was this was long overdue. Mm-hmm. This meeting between these two great civilizations and and aspirational kind of educational and research cultures. And they're both trying to investigate the mind. One using external means, you could say, the the means of a technical neuroscientific investigation, and the other using meditation and the inquiry of the mind directly, through direct experience of cultivating
2: mm-hmm. attention
1: and the like. And they had a tremendous amount to offer one another. And the whole audience, these thousand scholars, and it was webcast throughout the MIT campus and I know from talking with students there, it was followed with great interest. It was like a celebration, you know. (laughs) It's been 2,500 years of Buddhist practice, 400 years of Western scientific accomplishment. Why has it taken so long? And imagine Einstein, Heisenberg, Bohr, Schrodinger up on the stage. It would be great and not so (laughs) far-fetched. So it was a terrific privilege to be part of that. Conversation and those now have continued since yes. every year or two. There's I there's interviewed um, Mathieu
0: public. Ricard um, back in the fall.
1: Yes, Mathieu is a great example of someone mm-hmm. who grew up in the West, got his PhD in molecular biology, wrote a couple of papers, and headed for Nepal. Yes. <laughs> got his PhD in Tibetan Buddhist uh, practice and mm-hmm. philosophy, and now spans this these two cultures in a way which is almost unique. Yeah. There are just a few people like him, Alan Wallace being another. So these people are, are, are real guides on how we can move between these, these two cultures and learn from each and, and really benefit humanity as a consequence. The, you know, the, the adversarial treatment that we often have between science and, and faith or science especially and a contemplatively oriented, you know, a con- cognitively oriented contemplative spirituality, that, that breach has been a real Loss, I think, and we're discovering for the first time genuine ways to meet each other on a common ground of real concern for humanity and, and for truth.
0: So, you know, when I look at um, your like a course syllabus, I look at your website, and I see, you know, that you are you have courses where you name this division between knowledge and ethics, um, and this the struggle that has taken place in the West to establish the right relationship between science, human values, and spiritual convictions. and You point out that science has a deep-set concern about the subjective, and yet the subjective is where we live our lives, including even our lives as scientists. What I wonder when I read that is, I have a sense about the younger generation, which I don't like to generalize about groups of people, but let's do it here for the purposes of our conversation, that they have a real – they place a real value in authenticity and wholeness. Um, and I wonder if you find them bringing these things together just in their being in a different way.
1: I do think they're, they're committed to wholeness, but they're also – Even by the time they're 18 and they arrive at Amherst College, and these are wonderful students, uh, they become a little skeptical or cynical about the world. There's a strange hidden longing I detect in all of them, but almost a shyness uh, bordering on a, a kind of skepticism that that longing which they have will somehow be met. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the first things one has to do to sort of open up the possibility of leading a life of whole, a whole life or an undivided life, as Parker Palmer calls it, is to say, "Yes, you know, this is possible. Your ideals aren't silly, your aspirations aren't misguided." You know, they, I think they came into they, they come in today into classrooms in much the same way that I went into classrooms when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and you're hoping science or something is going to open up the questions of values of purpose and meaning in life and where, I'm, where we're headed. And uh, many commentators of higher education have remarked on how we have forgotten how to instruct in ways that really engage that level of student aspiration and interest. So we think of that as something that's to take place in dorms or off campus or something of that sort, and we just do the technical business of education. But that's, that's really, I think, diminishing the role of higher education for especially our young people. They long for that, and we have means of providing good classes that can uh, respond to those needs, both in the sciences and in the humanities, and in inter- interdisciplinary courses where I think one has a special possibility.
0: So one thing that I, I keep thinking about as I'm reading you, and and also through all the conversations I have with scientists um, you know, you talk about reintegrating the experiential, um, about seeing that as part of science. There's this incredible excitement um, that is there in you and in, in other people who find ways to bring these things together. You know, whether they are in any way traditionally religious or not, or however they talk about spirituality or the human spirit, um, I read, you know, I read Galileo, that Galileo said that mathematics is the language in which the universe is written. What I'm very aware of is that this excitement, that aspect of science as another way to pursue these great questions of what it all means and what matters and who we are and how we belong in the cosmos, that. None of that was there in science <laughs> as it came to me in school, right? And, and I, I have a grief about that because I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I missed my opportunity to become literate, right? At this point in my life, um, even as my conversations with scientists are thrilling or my readings in science are thrilling, I, I mean, I struggle to, to follow the concepts. And I mean, I know you've also thought a lot about science education, um, what, what what's happening with that? How, do you, how are you coming at that?
1: Well, first of all, I'm sorry <laughs> for you that you're... Your I'm not sure they taught me experience. literature any better, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very common complaint, right? Mm-hmm. That, the, that the deep dimensions of sciences, the project of science, are in some ways lost to the technicalities. And then you end up feeling frustrated and... You're not only not understanding the ideas, you just can't get the equations to work for you. And, I mean, it, it, it's a it's a real pity. It's a real shame. And if you go back to the dawn of science, you know, to people like Galileo or Kepler who talked about the sacred ecstasy he felt. And yeah. he said st- he stole the golden vessels of Egypt in his discoveries. And you know, he was,
0: was Jewish, right, Kepler, wasn't
1: he? Uh, that I couldn't tell you. I yeah. thought he was Old. Protestant, but... Yeah, he was Protestant. He, he Maybe went I'm to thinking uh, by
0: thinking. I'm thinking of someone else. Well, Spinoza. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So Kepler um, says, you know, I, I feel this sacred ecstasy at stealing the golden vessels of Egypt because mm-hmm. he's basically made a certain set of discoveries concerning the motions of the planets. Galileo, likewise, Newton, likewise, all of these people into the 19th century with the people studying the uh, electromagnetic theory. Faraday, again, doing this with a kind of divine and spiritual purpose in mind, um, even the early twentieth century, Einstein and the like they they weren't they were careful with their spirituality, mm-hmm. if you will they, we do 't want to overgeneralize and treat them as if they were all mystics or something like right, that, they but weren't. they they weren 't, but they were engaged with the philosophical and, and the deeper questions that were attendant. Mm -hmm. on the new discoveries and I think so much of that is lost or it's already only relegated into the popular kind of literature where students will often come having read that popular literature and then they'll be disabused so to speak of their ideas by the the hard technicalities of things but Mm. I think that's not necessary. One can do a very competent job of treating that material especially the new material on relativity and quantum mechanics and then pose those deep questions. I've done that often with students at Amherst and elsewhere and it's always a thrill. You know, mm-hmm. these are deep, remarkable issues that really bear on what it means to know, what our world is comprised of, what are the ultimate nature of things. And we're doing what Shabner Shimoni used to call uh, experimental metaphysics. It's not <laughs> just specula- speculation anymore. It's mm-hmm. actually in the lab where you're, you're exploring metaphysical questions. What a thrill. You know, Mm -hmm. what a thrill. Mm -hmm. And science is doing this now, not just in physics, but starting also the sciences of life, sciences of mind, some of them challenging our very notions of what it means to to have a mind or what the mind's like. Mm -hmm. So everywhere you look, science is verging on the deepest questions, sometimes challenging our, our religious and spiritual assumptions. But I think that's all to the good. We can find ways of working with the results of science if we understand them properly as a means of stimulating our deepest...
0: Right. I mean, I think science is throwing out challenging questions and insights that can be the work of very thrilling theology moving
1: forward. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Rather than see it as a threat Mm -hmm. to say, let's distinguish speculation in science, which often (laughs) surrounds the facts of science, distinguish the speculation from what it is we really know. But what we know can be a great stimulus to the exploration of the of the spiritual and, and values dimension of our world that mm-hmm. i don 't see any conflicts you know I think that's simply uh, conflicts simply arise when we 've imported often unconsciously a kind of metaphysical pre commitment often to a reductive and materialistic framework somehow mm. but when you think about what what is matter these days you know I mean, in physics, you know point particles the fundamental Particles of quarks and leptons, so-called electrons for example, are thought to be point particles. That means they have absolutely no size. So everything that has size around us is comprised of things which have no size. So it's not like you're piling bricks on top of one another. You've Hmm. got things which when you pile them on top of one another just simply collapse into one another. Hmm. A bunch of points on top of one another gives no extension, no size. Hmm. So what is the matter around us? you know, right. it's, it's like emptiness, but of a certain type, you know, <laughs> so,
3: <it's,
4: laughs> um, so the
1: notions of materialism and mechanism just go by the by, they just, they just leave the room. And then a, you say, well, we still have a world, you know, we still have mm-hmm. a world that's filled with order pattern, mm-hmm. social and emotional and, and idealistic con- content, so where does that derive, you mm-hmm. know, how is it that this arises in the world? So we, we are confronting these fabulous questions at the hand of the new sciences.
0: Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit also about another influential figure for you, which is Rudolf Steiner. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- where does he come into your thinking, and, and, how, and when did you discover him?
1: Uh, I discovered him in my 20s, that uh, those two gentlemen I spoke to you about, mm. the form of Western contemplative spirituality that they were both practicing was... Steiner's Anthroposophy, mm-hmm. an impossible word to pronounce, but much like my last name. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he was a, a figure who had studied Goethe as well, was well known as a Goethe scholar during his 20s, worked in the Goethe-Schiller archives and did the first editing of Goethe's scientific work and wrote several philosophical books, which were you know, widely read and critiqued and so forth in the normal scholarly way and mm-hmm. was leading a pretty conventional academic life. But parallel with that, he had a very active inner life, very active spiritual practice and so on. And then when he turned 40, he became uh, an active lecturer and writer on spiritual themes and also on the contemplative and meditative life. So the first book I, I read of his was his book on meditation called How to Know Higher Worlds, and um, that meditation book became for me a kind of practice manual that I've worked with ever since. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've also incorporated since then practices and and learnings and teachings from other traditions, but that was my first uh, opening to the contemplative, and it was a real homecoming. It felt like a, a kind of relief to see this path of knowledge, as he describes it, not just a path of Emotional regulation or stress reduction, but a real path of inquiry uh, that he laid out as somehow then valuable for, for me as a as a person committed to the scientific way of knowing.
0: So I think he's he's best known now for uh, the Anthroposophical Society uh, and also for the Waldorf schools, which are, which are modeled after his
1: philosophy. Yeah, yeah. This is a very attractive, was very attractive for me because many spiritual traditions, uh, as interesting as they are amongst in themselves, don't really have practical application. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: But if if you maintain that you're coming to insights through contemplative methods, let's say, concerning, for example, the growth and development of the child, then that will have educational, pedagogical implications. And indeed, in 1919, he was asked and he accepted the the task of working with a group of individuals to start a new kind of educational system in the post-war years, post-First World War. When Germany was in ruins and there was a real sort of revolutionary spirit in the air and he was asked by a factory owner to help teach the children of his hmm. factory workers. That became the Waldorf was the Waldorf Astoria cigarette factory, <laughs> so that <laughs> thus the name Waldorf <laughs> oh, schools. Oh,
0: I didn't realize that. Great yeah,
1: story. so so now there are over a thousand schools around the world, all making use of a pedagogy which is based on a not only physical or psychological understanding of the growth of the child, but a, a spiritual understanding of the development of the child as well. So that's one area. Biodynamic farming, which uh, is another, it was one of the very first <laughs> organic. Uh, farming movements, and uh, that was another one he participated in, guiding, guiding, and, and lecturing.
0: And you know, my, medical,
1: sorry, medical initiatives, mm-hmm. also areas in medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done a lot with.
0: Well, see, I mean, my daughter attended a Waldorf school, which was a fantastic experience for a couple of years, and um, but I had no idea that he had that his background was in science. That he began as a science.
1: Uh, yeah, he went scientist. to the Technical University of Vienna, which would be like MIT.
0: Right, the MIT of Austria. The, so, idea of Austria. the MIT of Austria. Yeah, we were talking about light um, at the beginning of our conversation, which is a great source of scientific deliberation. And um, so Stein, Rudolf Steiner spent a lot of time talking about light's spiritual qualities, right? About
1: yeah. Light um, having
0: moral effect. I mean, you, you mentioned that about Goethe, too, and we didn't
1: go into it. But
0: talk to me about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Steiner's universe is, to me, it's something like what must have gone on its chart, you know, where you had a huge picture of what it meant to be a human being, not only bound to the earth, but within a cosmos that was rich with a, a wide range of spiritual forces and agents and so forth. And so light for Steiner is a kind of borderline effect a kind of tr- a kind of half this world half spiritual uh, it's it is an interesting phenomenon right if you just look yeah. at you know here you are you and I are both in the studio lit by lights and yet we don't see the light itself what we see are all the objects that are illuminated
0: right now you wrote an early book on light catching the light and I, I there's something in there that you po- you just pointed it out that It's so simple, but I'd never thought about it. That light itself is always invisible. That we only see the things that light falls on.
1: Yeah, isn't that amazing? Light is sort of selfless in this. It just it makes everything visible, and yet itself is invisible. And uh, so, what is this invisible reality? You know, it's obvious when we turn off the room lights. Something changed. Mm-hmm. Yet, with something, the thing that would changed is not something we can see. It's not something you can see under a microscope. It's not like you can sort of up the magnification and then oh, there's those little balls or something. Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing to be seen. Uh, we think of it as a kind of energy or something of that sort in the in, this, in the new physics, right? But what does that connote? That very notion of energy. In other words, there's a, a kind of agency that's that's part of this. Its nature, a kind of activity that it that it offers, but it's an activity which is invisible Mm -hmm. to the senses. So for Steiner, um, that was not just a metaphor for something; it wasn't just a a kind of symbol or set of observations, but but actually pointed to a deep spiritual dimension that is also part of light's nature. It's in some ways it's the first aspect of what Steiner would call a supersensible reality. So we live in a world. Super. super sensible, right? That the contemplative is a is a doorway, which which opens into a world of experience, and it's experience that anyone can have. It's not a privileged experience, but it's a sp- set of experiences of not just a sensory world, but now what he would call a super sensible world, and the very first domain that one steps into, and this is often reported in the mystic and contemplative literature, is a domain of light. Mm-hmm. That one—if you think even of Plato's scene of the cave—that one steps out of the cave and into a world of light that takes some time to get used to, as Plato describes. So it's not something you immediately understand where you are, but nonetheless, it's something you can you can make your way towards through through practice.
0: That—that's that, the thing in these spiritual visions. We do think of light itself as being visible, right? That you see the light, right? I saw the light. Yeah. That's a phrase. But, as right, you point right. out that if you don 't have an object for light to fall on, in fact, we only see
1: darkness yeah so the uh, the contemplative becomes an avenue not only into a kind of interiority for ourselves, mm-hmm. you know our own moral and say lives of purpose and meaning, and so forth that we we may brood over, which is something different than meditating but it also there's an objective character to the contemplative inquiry, the kind that Steiner is interested in, where one's oriented towards the other, towards the world around us, towards nature. And uh, one comes to know, I think of it this way, that one comes to know the interior of the exterior, one comes to know the inside Mm. of every outside. Mm. It's not only human beings that have an interior and inside, but that the world around us as well can be known inwardly. Strike a bell and You can listen to the sound, but you can also move towards the qualities that are more aesthetic and even moral in nature that deal with the sounding bell or the the particular color or that painting that's there or the music that you're hearing. Mm. So life is is, uh, dense with those levels of experience, but we need to calm ourselves, get clear, get quiet, direct attention, sustain the attention open up to what is normally invisible and certain things begin to show themselves, maybe Mm. gently to begin with, but nonetheless it deepens and enriches our lives. And it does so in a way which is experiential, which ultimately can lead to to epiphanies of understanding, so it's cognitive in that sense. And then my way of thinking is not at odds with science in the slightest, Um, it's only at odds with a materialist reduction which is actually not part of science. So mm. I find being a scientist and also practicing the contemplative pathway to be completely congruent with one another. In fact, if we are committed to knowledge, then we ought to be committed also to exploring the world with these lenses, with this method in mind and heart. You know, otherwise, we're, we're kind of doing it halfway. And then when we go to solve the problems of our world, whether they're educational or environmental, we're bringing only half of our intelligence to bear. We've left the other half idle or relegated it to religious philosophers. Mm. But if we're going to be integral ourselves, you know, have a perspective which is whole, then we need to bring all of our capacities to the issues that we, can, that we confront, spiritual capacities as well as more, condition, more conventional sensory-based intellect and, and the like.
0: Right. You know, one thing you've pointed out is that technology, as it's evolving, it, as it becomes more sophisticated and often more minute uh, and hidden, um, is separating us all from the sensory, from, it's disembodying. Um, science you know what science used to be or just you know at, at the basic sense of how things work um, that the world in fact the world itself so much of what we're dealing is is more abstract and less embodied
1: yeah technology is a is a is a wonderful subject uh, I've, I've taught courses on technology and culture and the like and it's a uh, I think it's a, such a pervasive and important aspect of our lives that we need to become really attentive to this uh, emerging dominance mm-hmm. and try to become literate and understand the, the full significance of technology. You know, in the in the mythic traditions, you you had the priest who was – or shaman in the traditional indigenous cultures – but someone of equal stature in those communities was the blacksmith, the, the technical oh. person, if you will, right. on, on, in the cultures. In, in one legend, there are two eggs at the beginning of existence. And when one hatches, you get the priest. And the other hatches, you get the blacksmith. <laughs> and uh, the blacksmith traditionally played important roles in the uh, initiation rituals of early cultures and so on. And and that stands for something. In other words, there's a long lineage of technology and craft that has become increasingly dominant and in certain ways overshadowed many of the, I would say, overt spiritual dimensions of our lives. And technology itself has become, in some sense, increasingly secular, whereas in the beginning it was also seen as part of a larger spiritual imagination. Mm -hmm. Just think of Hephaestus as the god of craft for the ancient Greeks. So we live within a a world that has become increasingly technical, but also increasingly secular, increasingly uh, a technology without recognition of its inherent uh, human and even spiritual possibilities. And so as a consequence, it seems to me that the technologies that are developed are developed in a certain sense blindly without a real understanding of their full effects, their full power, not only in practical ways like environmental problems and so on that they may cause, but also psychologically and their effects on human consciousness, especially the consciousness of children. Mm -hmm. Uh, Technologies are are kind of brilliant and also in their ability to capture, uh, I think, emerging spiritual capacities. Say, for example, when you're working with meditation, uh, one of the things that arises are images. And so in some ways you work with the imagination inwardly. You're actively engaged with the imagination. And uh, virtual reality, 3D movies, uh, all the rest also work with that. But they work with it in a way which leads to a more passive engagement. Not an active imagination, but one where all the work is being done for you by the technology itself. So oh, I, yeah, I, I love
0: radio, you know, because radio does actually
1: exactly. leave it radio all to your has, own imagination. It leaves it to your imagination. Mm-hmm. It's like reading a good book, you mm-hmm. know. You're 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 engaged at a certain level through the reading, but you're also stimulated to imagine yourself. So, or storytelling, mm-hmm. hearing an oral story. It's so fabulous. You watch a child listening to a story being told. Their eyes are focused at a distance, and you can just see the pictures somehow rising up in them. mm mm-hmm. um, that's a real gift to childhood. It's also, you know, a gift to adults. Uh, now, I hasten to say, I'm no luddite. You know, I, I grew up underneath a car, you know, uh, <laughs> fixing things. So, and I, and I continue to to tinker, and my lab is full of stuff. You know, So right, But
0: would you be able to fix the computer in your car now, the way you could tinker underneath it then?
1: <laughs> well, maybe I might be able to but certainly most people wouldn't be able to, yeah. you know, cuz I've kept up with some of that technological development, uh-huh. but it's much harder, much more difficult. Everything is invisible, everything is down there in the micro world. So so the uh the old ways of of analysis and taking things apart uh, no longer suit. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the the that hidden nature of technology that's everywhere, that's pervasive but hidden the inherent complexities of it have become such barriers that, yes, most people are no longer able to imagine how things work. Um, So how is it that you, you know, uh, confront those technologies? I mean, I think part of it is realizing this lineage and tradition that I mentioned at the beginning, that, that everything depends on how you hold what you do and how you hold, therefore, also the technology. And what I mean by how you hold it is what's the framework, the, the, the imaginal framework inside of which you live your lives, including even your technical life. Um, you know, if you uh, are unconscious about it, then the technology itself will well, as it were create that world for you will say okay here are the values of our world mm-hmm. we see them on television we see them displayed in the movies and so forth uh, you're being manipulated in a certain direction by the technologies and even by the means not just the content but even by the type of technology that's there but if one's self-conscious about one's engagement with the technology if one sees it as a part of a human Development as part and a kind of a kind of outgrowth of a particular form of human awareness and capacity, and frames it as such, then it becomes more of a servant to us, and we know when to, to to make use of it, and we know when not to make use of it. We know how to make use of it. It becomes indeed more of a tool. You know, the word technology stems from the word techne, which means art, mm. doesn't mean machine. Mm. It means art. So if technology can become much more of an art uh, than, than a machine that's deriving a particular purpose, or commercial or otherwise, I think we'll, we'll salvage those what technology does have to offer for us.
0: I mean, those, what you just named, those questions, those dilemmas are really, it's a layer of existential questioning that's been added to humanity in our time and do you find your students grappling with that?
1: Yeah, that's that's very encouraging to me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've now taught for over 30 years at a wonderful place and I've seen many students. And I'd say especially in the last 10 years, uh, you know, students change over time. I don't know why, but there are kind of waves of interest and commitments. And we're in a wave of interest with interest in the existential issues, interest in ecology and and Mm -hmm. helping the planet, interest in social justice and and working with the poor, not not so much starting big organizations, but just doing it, just getting out and helping. There's a wonderful uh, mood on the campuses, I find, that not everyone, but many, many, are longing to be of real assistance to the planet and to our fellow humanity, fellow people. Mm -hmm. And and that goes sort of hand-in-hand with uh, a sense of, well... What are the values that we hold? What are the spiritual uh, foundations of our lives? They're less religiously oriented, but I'd say the spiritual commitments and values are as large as ever, maybe greater than ever. Mm. I don't think our universities and colleges do a very good job of picking up on them, not, not as a clergy person might, but as a scholar might. You know, there's, through the literature that we, we offer our students to read, and to engage with some of the greatest questions of our, of all time are explored. Mm. Whether, it's for, whether it's with uh, Odysseus's journey home or whether it's with the new science, they all offer a foundation for a deep exploration that is of relevance to students' personal lives and what they're gonna make of those lives. Mm. And the other side, which I'm, I'm often saddened, is that they, they graduate and if they've had a good experience, and which isn't always the case, but if they've had a good experience, they want to actualize those ideals in the world and the world seems somehow so so connected to a more mercantile mentality and you know a short bottom line a you know, short quarter bottom line kind of mentality that the uh, students find themselves swept up into jobs which really are not in alignment not in alignment with their deepest aspirations and then they become discouraged so they they may leave with the ideals still intact and even encouraged, but when they get out in the world, there are precious few opportunities. Mm-hmm. So they'll wander, they'll drift, they'll they'll try to find their way. But uh, we should somehow be far more proactive, I think, in engaging them by restructuring our economy or doing something <laughs> small that, things, <laughs> small things like a green yeah. economy, right? right? You know, but it, you know, it, yeah. you had your priorities straight, and you know, maybe pulled some money out of wars and. Put them into this, then you'd have those hundreds of billions that you could spend on greening your economy. Unfortunately, we don't.
0: I I was reading your book, um, meditation as contemplative inquiry, and uh, there's a there's some lines of Rudolf Steiner, and I'm not quite sure why I'm so taken by them, but I am. Um, I'll read a little bit before this passage that I just want to ask you to ask you about. He he wrote he this was in 1924. Um, I feel my fate, my fate finds me, I feel my star, my star finds me, I feel my aims, my aims find me, my soul and the world are one. And then life will be clearer around me, life will be more burdensome for me, life will be richer for me. I really like that because I think that is a description of this world we've moved into, which can be burdensome and rich at the same time. And this idea that perhaps those two things have to go together and that they come with clarity.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You know, some people, you know, refuse the burdensome part. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, no, you know, when when I become deep and silent and contemplative in my musings, when I open up to what's really important in life, then everything will become easy and my life will kind of go on on a continual bliss state or something. But actually, the clarity means you see things you hadn't seen before. The richness of your life means that you begin to carry concerns that you maybe neglected before. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they make, in some ways, existential demands on us to say, you need to help. And then how do I help? What do I have to do with my life in order to be of greater help? Maybe I need to go back to school, get that medical degree. Now I know what needs to be done in Africa, what needs to be done in South America, what needs to be done at home in our own towns and villages. So that clarity, which can come with a reflective life, indeed enriches our lives, but definitely also opens us up to to new burdens, new tasks. It doesn't necessarily
0: simplify them.
1: No. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it simplifies them in the sense that... um, that knowledge always simplifies. Knowledge always makes clear. Knowledge always informs, but it it doesn't make it easy. Uh, so you're buying into something. You know, when you when you take up this kind of clarification that happens at, through reflection. And I think maybe people have an intimation of that, if they're a little shy about it. Um, you know, if I start down this road, where does it lead? And uh, indeed, I think if one's honest, it, it does lead to greater responsibility. Mm. And I, I don't think the young people mind that at all. You know, I think right. they, yeah, I don't they think embrace so. Don't, that. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the good news. You know, they often uh, the first part of that quotation, which had to do with "my fate finds me" and the like. Mm-hmm. That's something which, you know, is a perennial question for each of us. You know, how is it we we guide our lives and conduct our lives? Uh, where do we find our next step? And especially for students who are forming their lives on you know, just on, that, on the spot in those four years or eight years. Mm-hmm. The contemplative as a means of inner guidance, you know, that you really begin to weigh and sort out your values carefully, systematically, gently and reflectively, can be of huge help. And then you gradually begin to realize this direction, not that, these values, not those, these friends who are on that same journey not these other wonderful people who are going in a different direction, and so on, um, I think have also much to offer for a for student life.
0: So you have recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's true.
0: So, And I think that's pretty a pretty recent diagnosis, is that correct? About so, a year ago, yes. A year ago. So how is this contemplative practice, this capacity you've honed to keep asking the question of what guides you Um, how how is that intersecting with this experience of this illness
1: that's a great question and one that's unfolding with time Mm -hmm. um, first of all it's you know I'm a regular meditator and so (laughs) the first things you notice is uh, the the effect of your contemplative life on tremor for example Hmm. Um, I noticed Uh, The following, there are two main types of meditation, and and both of them are part of my life, which one is a concentration, and the other is what I call open awareness. It's a very open presence. In the concentration phase, tremor is... Actually, worsened. But is it's, that when uh, you're
0: concentrating on a
1: reading or an image? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. You you have a line of poetry or a, from scripture or an image, mm-hmm. and you bring your full, undivided, single-pointed attention to that content. Uh, but as you, as it were, strain mentally to do that, the hand begins to tremor more. Mm. Um, and then, when you release the image, and become very still and quiet, and open yourself wide the hand slowly calms to the point where indeed your whole body feels at ease and the tremor disappears. Um, interesting. So there's a kind of, you might say, phenomenology of the body in relation to meditation which I hadn't fully appreciated before, but I can see that the mind and the body are so delicately attuned to one another that these practices, uh, Affect the Parkinson's state itself, mm-hmm. um, and then there are, of course, always uh, more the kind of long-term or existential questions because a diagnosis like Parkinson's is uh, not a not a. It's not like you're going to die in a certain period of time, but you have a certain outcome that basically you you see. My mother had Parkinson's, and her sister her, her sister had Parkinson's, oh, okay. so I, I've seen Parkinson's mm-hmm. in its progression, and and now that becomes part of my life. And my friendships, and the work I do, and also the practices that i that I do as a contemplative uh so then you you learn to hold your life even more consciously for the fact that you now have a diagnosis of a serious illness. Mm. What is it you wish then to do with these this wild, precious life Oliver <laughs> <As> Mary Oliver, <laughs> as Mary about Oliver it. said, yeah, yeah. And, well, now it's like you've got to really get busy with that question, you know. You've you got a few good years, and, and then you don't know quite what's going to happen. And, and uh, it makes things so much more real. I'd say the place where it's the most real of all is through friendships. You know, when I'm on my own, it's, it's uh, a condition I carry every minute of the day. Uh, but when I'm with a friend... That friend sees me as a person they love, but also a person who is likely you know coming towards the end of a of a span of creativity in life and so their their relationship to you is intensified in ways that are hard to describe mm. but very precious so i 'd say that aspect the aspect of i might say the communal uh, social aspect of how to not only I hold the condition that I have, but how is it my friends hold it as well, is something of true value, truly precious.
0: How do you... Is, is there a learning that you take from that, from that experience in meditation that, that spacious openness helps and that concentration? Is, is there anything that you apply to the rest of your day? Through that, or is that is that too much of a stretch?
1: No, it's not too much of a stretch. In fact, uh, here's how here's how I think about it. Okay. You know, when I when I fall asleep, the tremor disappears. That's the way Parkinson's works. Um, In other words, there's a state of awareness that's something like sleeping. That is called meditation. But it's like sleeping only in the sense that you've crossed the threshold of consciousness, but in this case, you're staying awake. Mm-hmm. does that makes sense? So it's like being awake in your sleep. Yeah. Uh, so you, you calm, especially in that open state of awareness, you calm yourself. You feel a shift taking place. You maintain a vivid awareness. And at that same time, everything kind of calms down to the state that you're familiar with in sleep. Often people find themselves falling asleep yeah, you know, in right. their meditations. But if you're schooled and practiced at it, that doesn't happen. And, and you uh, maintain a vivid awareness. The thing I haven't figured out is, like, how to drive a car in that state of awareness. <laughs> you know, that, in other words, could you... So here's the, here's the, here's the question I pose to myself, mm-hmm. you know. Is it possible to be alive, active in the world, and yet have such calm, such kind of inner openness and presence that one can lead a life, at least in part, that uh, is an expression of that quality of meditative quiescence that's on the one hand quite alert mm-hmm. and on the other hand completely at ease, completely at rest. Uh, so it's a little bit like bringing the, the sleeping life into the day life. Right. And, and I'll keep you posted okay. as to whether that comes out all okay. right or not.
0: good. I think this is my final question. I... Mystery is a word that Einstein used. It's a word that I've heard a lot from scientists, both scientists who are not religious at all and scientists who are deeply religious. It has different connotations. I wonder, as a practitioner of meditation, um, do you have a, and a scientist, do you have a vocabulary of mystery?
1: Yes. Um, So here's my take on that word. Um, Number one, Mystery can sometimes be used as a way of deflecting real inquiry. To say, "Well, we just mm. have to resign ourselves to it's the mystery." It's a mystery.
3: Okay.
1: It's a mystery. We should leave it be. We should just let it go. Now, the scientist in me says, "No, that—that's—that something is not right with that. Right. That interpretation of mystery. It's too easy." Rather, what I think we need to do is to recognize that no matter how deeply we engage the world, no matter how far we manage to penetrate into the mystery, there will always be more mystery. It's always deeper. It's always bigger. It's always wider than our possible imagination at any given moment. But it's always an invitation. The mystery is a kind of invitation in. It's not a wall before which we have to give up, but rather a kind of uh, find the door. Where is that little crink, you know, that mm-hmm. little chink that allows you to to peer through, and then gradually to open up and find resources and capacities in yourself to to take a little step, or to re- put the horizon a little further further away. You know, it's like when you you have a horizon around you; it's given by how high up you are on the earth. If you go up to the mountain top, you'll see a lot further. Mm-hmm. Stay down in the valley, you won't see far at all. So, the mystery that's over the horizon. Can be gazed at if you just lift yourself up a little higher. Mm. I think the contemplative dimensions of life help us do that. To say there are capacities or points of view or places we can pose, places we can put ourselves that allow us to engage the world more broadly, more widely, see further. And it doesn't take anything. It doesn't take anything away from the world, because there's always another horizon.
4: There's always a, a
1: further distance.
0: I like that juxtaposition of engaging mystery and engaging the world more actively. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Th- that um, a, you know, a, a passive to stand passively before the world. You know, um, to allow it its due is is one pole. You know, to be receptive, to be um, open, uh, to be gentle. All is of extraordinary value. We learn a great deal through that quality of awareness and and attitude. But we don't need to be reminded very often of the sufferings of the world, of the needs of others, uh, of the responsibility we have to be active, and to be active with our full humanity, all capacities, mind, body, spirit, everything. And that each of them requires cultivation, Care of the body, care of the soul, care of the spirit, if you will. And the question is, how do we care for each of these and uh, cultivate their full dimensionality, their full range of capacities, so that when we do act, we don't act with partial information, with only part of who we are, but we bring all of who we are to all that the world is? Then I think we've really got, we've really done it well. You know, we've really been adequate to what our destinies are on this planet. And uh, I think that's true of not only ourselves, but of the children we educate and uh, all parts of civilization and all cultures, civilizations.
0: Is there anything else, anything you want to add or say that we haven't talked about?
1: Well, there's a favorite quote of mine that from William James. Maybe I'll end with that. Okay. He says, uh, this is from 1909, his last book called A Pluralistic Universe. Let empiricism once become associated with religion, as hitherto, through some strange misunderstanding, it has been associated with irreligion. And I believe that a new era of religion as well as of philosophy. will be ready to begin.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, Krista, it was wonderful you, talking Arthur. with it's you. Great. You're very welcome.
0: Thank you so much. And are we so welcome. We'll be letting you know uh, when this is going to be on the air, what's happening with it. Um, if we have any questions, I think we have your email address. You're getting ready to travel, is that right? you Yeah, I'm heading
1: to New Zealand uh, in a few hours. So.
3: Okay. Well,
1: but I'm emailable okay. on my iPhone, this brilliant little device piece of technology we all love well
0: thank you for making this time and I'm just thrilled that we could finally have this conversation you're you're very welcome do you know about my book? I want to send you a copy of my book yes, please
1: do, I I just saw it uh, mentioned or reviewed somewhere it sounds like a great collection
0: yeah, I'd love to send it to you because you know, it's, it's, it's it has. It's resonant with the kinds of yeah, things it's got we're got a lot of about and that you teach about. So great. Okay. Yeah. Thank well, you. Well, I'm
1: glad to know your daughter went to uh, Waldorf school for yes, a couple it was years. Yes, fantastic. Was nice. Yeah, and they they'll be happy. Mi- <laughs> the Waldorf
0: school in Minneapolis will be happy that I mentioned them. Here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh yeah, call out. Right. That's good. <laughs> all hey, right. Well. Take care then. All right. Be okay. well. Bye bye. So long. Yeah. Thank you, Milt. It was my. It was my pleasure. Thank you.